The United States to send Kyiv $1.2 billion worth of new military aid. Additional air defense systems and munitions, equipment to integrate Western air defense launchers, missiles, and radars with Ukraine's air defense systems. Plus, diplomacy is the name of the game with the U.S., the U.K., China, and the war in Ukraine. The U.S. and U.K. maintain a coordinated approach toward China, including looking for ways to solve big challenges. Ukraine's spring offensive against Russia may pave the way for negotiations by the end of the year. And later in the program, are things in Russia really as bad as they were during the Soviet times? Today is Wednesday, May 10th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Steve Karish in Washington. The United States will be sending $1.2 billion worth of military aid to Ukraine in the latest aid package announced on Tuesday. At a news conference, Brigadier General Pat Ryder, the Pentagon press secretary, says the latest long-term Ukraine aid package will provide for a range of defenses. The capabilities in this package include additional air defense systems and munitions, equipment to integrate Western air defense launchers, missiles, and radars with Ukraine's air defense systems, ammunition for counter-unmanned aerial systems, 155-millimeter artillery rounds, commercial satellite imagery services, and support for training, maintenance, and sustainment activities. That's Pentagon spokesperson Brigadier General Pat Ryder. Another story from Ukraine highlights the perils that international journalists and war correspondents face every day. The Associated Press's Charles de la Desma has that story. French international news agency Agence France Presse says its Ukraine video coordinator was killed on Tuesday during a rocket attack near the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. The agency says 43-year-old Amand Soldat was with a team of AFP journalists travelling with Ukrainian soldiers when the group came under fire with Grad rockets. The rest of the AFP team was uninjured. The late afternoon attack took place in the vicinity of Shazivyar, a town near Bakhmut. Russian forces have been trying to capture the city for nine months, making Bakhmut the focus of the war's longest battle. The AFP's chairman says Soldan's death is a terrible reminder of the risks and and dangers faced by journalists every day covering the conflict in Ukraine. I'm Charles Diladesma. Russia is evacuating its personnel from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. What does this mean for the safety of the plant and why might Russia be doing this? Anna Chernikova is in Kyiv. Following the report by uh, International Atomic Energy Agency that there are, uh, the risks are getting higher uh, in that area and that evacuation is happening, uh, it, uh, we have some additional details from the Ukrainian energy agency, um, energy agency uh, Energoatom. Uh, according to their latest statement, um, they are saying that basically Russian forces are evacuating uh, those workers of the, of the nuclear power plant who signed agreement with Rosatom, which is Russian uh, energy agency company. And uh, uh, the evacuation is taking place of the workers and their families. And it looks like uh, Russian forces are trying to evacuate uh, around 3,100 people. And this, according to uh, to Energo Atom, this will create additional difficulties uh, to operate power plant. Uh, also, additionally, Energo Atom uh, said that 
Ukrainian side is getting ready Ukrainian personnel to uh, to operate the plant when it will be uh, deoccupied lib- uh, when the area will be liberated um, because um, the reaction would have been uh, will have to be very quick and uh, basically Ukrainian um, energy uh, agency is uh, getting ready to enable the operation of the plant when uh, there is access to the plant. So why is Russia evacuating the personnel from the plant? Is it for their safety? Well, uh, this is a good question. Uh, unfortunately, we cannot verify this information. There could be different reasons. Uh, and uh, inside the country, there are talks about, uh, so one of the reasons might be this possible counteroffensive uh, phase, uh, which everyone is expecting, or it could be certain you know, a tactical logistic uh, reason. So uh, unfortunately, for the moment, I cannot answer this question and there is no um, confirmation or at least independently verified information regarding that. So, um, and, and Russian, Russian authorities did not provide explanation yet. Okay, leaving Zaporizhia aside for a moment, Anna, it seems that the fighting in Bakhmut just won't stop. What's the latest from there? Uh, yes, situation in Bakhmut remains extremely difficult as it is for the past months, but at least we have some some additional information from the Ukrainian military um, confirming that uh, in these past days Ukrainian forces had some success in some of the uh, areas uh, around Bakhmut uh, because previously we had also confirmation that Russian forces uh, managed to advance. So today uh, we know that it was uh, quite a successful uh, operation by, by one of the units of the Ukrainian armed forces and they managed to uh, liberate a certain part around the city of Bakhmut. So we don't, of course, have uh, exact uh, information regarding the location, but it was reported that uh, basically uh, Ukrainian forces uh, destroyed uh, one of the a part of one of the brigades of of the Russian uh, forces. Two stories we'll be keeping our eye on for days to come. Anna Chernikova in Kiev. Anna, as always, thanks for your time. Thank you, Steve. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Tuesday that Washington is looking to cooperate with China to solve, quote, big challenges. His remarks come as China prepares to send an envoy to Ukraine for peace talks, and just as the U.S. announced it's providing Ukraine with new military aid ahead of an expected spring offensive against Russia. VOA's State Department Bureau Chief Nike Ching has more. In Washington, the Pentagon said the U.S. will provide Ukraine with $1.2 billion in military aid ahead of its expected spring offensive against Russia. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Right now, of course, the focus is on the Ukrainian efforts that we anticipate to try to retake more of the territory that's been seized uh, from Ukraine by Russia over the last um, the last 14 plus months. My own estimation is that uh, they um, have in place across all of those dimensions uh, what they need to continue to be successful in regaining territory. Next month, the UK will host the Ukraine Recovery Conference. British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly. We will uh, seek to uh, build a coalition 
that uh, will enable Ukraine to rebuild its country after this uh, conflict has been uh, concluded, after they regain their country uh, back. Blinken said the U.S. and U.K. maintain a coordinated approach toward China, including looking for ways to solve big challenges. Ukraine's spring offensive against Russia may pave the way for negotiations by the end of the year, officials say. In Europe, officials said China could play a part. Annalena Baerbach is Germany's foreign minister. China, as a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, can play a significant role in ending the war if it chooses to do so. Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang said Tuesday that China is preparing to send a peace envoy to Ukraine. We will persist in promoting peace talks, and we will send the Chinese government special envoy for Eurasian affairs to visit Ukraine in the near future. But one analyst is skeptical. Ambassador William Taylor is vice president for Europe and Russia at the Washington-based U.S. Institute of Peace. The Chinese are not neutral. They are not unbiased. They are clearly tilted, much tilted, uh, toward Russia. The the key caution um, is uh, to be sure that any conversation with the Chinese um, about the Ukraine war, the Russian war on Ukraine, uh, has the Ukrainians as participants. U.S. officials say there is a role for China to play in mediating peace talks, but such diplomatic efforts should be consistent with the principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity. Nike Chin, VOA News, Washington. Russian crude oil shipments have hit their highest level since the beginning of 2022, according to a Bloomberg report, this despite Western sanctions imposed over Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. As Henry Ridgewell reports, Russia has found new buyers outside of Europe, but at a significant hit to its profits. Russia shipped on average 3.66 million barrels of crude oil per day in the four weeks up to May 5th, according to figures compiled by Bloomberg. That's the highest level since the beginning of 2022. Almost all of the oil is being shipped to China and India, with smaller amounts heading to Egypt and Turkey. Before its February 2022 invasion of Ukraine, Russia shipped 1.5 million barrels of oil per day to the European Union. But Western countries have reduced that trade to almost zero. Only Bulgaria is importing Russian crude oil. The EU imports of crude oil from Russia are completely replaced by Egyptian and Indian imports of crude oil. So Russia has found other buyers, and the EU in turn has looked for other suppliers and has also found it. Despite finding new buyers, Russia's oil revenues have shrunk by two-thirds. Western sanctions and a price cap of $60 per barrel on Russian oil are squeezing profits. The Kremlin said last week that export proceeds fell 67% last month to $6.4 billion.
Russia is suffering. Um, you can look at the data. Yes, they have found new buyers of oil, but at a lower price. The new buyers are also much further away, resulting in average shipping times of 16 to 18 days, up from four to six days for the pre-war shipments to Russia's European neighbours, according to Reuters. And of course, that is negative for the cost. So prices in general go up. And it's also bad for the environment if you think about CO2 emissions. And part of the gamble of Vladimir Putin was that the Western countries would not be willing to bear those costs. But now that we see, uh, I think, more than a year uh, that the Western countries are willing to accept some of the cost. The West is trying to persuade allies like India to import less Russian oil. But of course, those countries are sovereign countries and they have their own interests. But in in a way, you want to make the second best option for Russia even worse. Uh, But that will have limited success, as history tells us and as uh, the economic analysis tells us today. Analysts say some Russian oil is likely still entering European markets. Crude oil is difficult to track as it can be easily blended with other shipments in transit countries or at sea. The complexity of shipping companies and vessel flagging adds to the difficulty of enforcing sanctions. Henry Ridgewell for VOA News, London. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Karish. Are things better or worse for Russian citizens than they were during the Soviet times? Well, it depends who you ask. I spoke with Serge Shmeman, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, former Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times, and current New York Times editorial board member. His latest opinion piece is called, Things in Russia Aren't as Bad as the Old Soviet Days. They're Worse. No matter how many people were being arrested, no matter how repressive, and it was very repressive, and there was nothing in the stores, and the whole system was uh, totally stagnating. But at least there was a sense of hope. Um, You know, Stalinism had been rock bottom, and it was moving towards something. The Politburo was old. Something was going to change. Something had to give. So there was an anticipation of change. And of course, once Gorbachev came to power, uh, the change came. So it's more like the process, uh, the the movement. The movement was towards an opening. And um, now they feel that under Putin, under Vladimir Putin, everything is rolling backwards. And that leads to a hopelessness. Things are, um, they're losing all the things they gained, the things that they thought they would gain forever once the Soviet Union collapsed. Such as? Freedoms, uh, like the um, relative amount of free speech, free travel, uh, respect. Respect was very much a part of it. Uh, You know, Russians traveling around the world were in universities and um, the Russian artistic groups were honored and respected. Uh, but now it seems, you know, that um, Russian Russians and Russian culture and Russian artists are, are being canceled. Uh, we know of many incidences, instances when, uh, you know, Russian, let's like uh, Anna Netrebko at the Metropolitan Opera, uh, who was basically... Um, you know, uh, 
canceled. She is giving no more concerts. She's not participating. And there is a general mood that Russians are looked down upon. So that's one way. Another way is just losing the kind of a sense of momentum. You don't know where Russia is going to go. You know that Russia is going to be kind of an outcast for a long time. You know, but the world looks down upon Russia, and that's not likely to change for a generation, and a feeling of helplessness. So it's, it's you know, what we're talking about is not kind of the physical, commercial side of life. Russia is still far better than it was in the Soviet Union. There is a lot more money, a lot more things to do, a lot more things to buy. Uh, people can still travel to some degree. If you go online, you can still get information. But it seems that um, this, a society which they thought would be open forever is once again being closed and being driven backwards. Are you in contact with people in Russia now? How are they feeling? Um, I'm in contact. And of course, I should say very clearly that I'm talking about people who oppose Putin, uh, whether abroad or in Russia. Uh, we need to be very clear that there are many, many people in Russia. It's very hard to, to, to gauge exactly how many and what proportions, because public opinion polls are relatively meaningless in a society like that. But many people do support Putin, do support, uh, do buy his line about why he's invaded Ukraine, how the West is fighting him and whatnot. So I'm talking about those Russians who have a more enlightened, well, I would call it a more enlightened point of view, who are critical of Putin. And I think uh, those Russians uh, that I know, who I speak to in Russia, um, who see it that way are, of course, uh, you know, very sad. Uh, I can't, don't want to really name names because who knows uh, what will happen. But there are also some people who've sort of been compelled, as they were in the Soviet Union, to, to publicly express fealty to, to Putin in order, uh, presumably, to keep their jobs. But um, it's put a lot of very difficult strain on people who, uh, in the academic world, in the artistic world, who now uh, feel very dejected by the direction in which this is headed. It's probably no coincidence that your article appeared in the newspaper when it did. May 9th is an important holiday in Russia. It's Victory Day to celebrate the victory over the Nazis to end World War II. And we see Putin now using some of that same anti-fascist rhetoric that was used mm. against the Nazis. He's using it against Ukraine. You, you make that point in your story and mm -hmm. how offensive that is. That is tremendously offensive because uh, in the Soviet Union and to this day, uh, World War II, the Great Patriotic War, was sort of the one moment in, in which, uh, over which all Soviet citizens could be proud. This is when they rose up and in their view, you know, saved the West, uh, defeated fascism. And, uh, you know, everybody grew up thinking that this was a true feat of um, the Soviet people. Uh, and so to hear this kind of the, the symbolism of that victory, which was indeed a great victory at enormous cost, 
uh, cost being used in a in this pathetic war is very insulting to a lot of people. Serge Schmemann is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, former Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times. Currently, he's a member of the New York Times editorial board. Mr. Schmemann, thanks so much for your time today. Well, thank you very much. More than 37 years have passed since the Chernobyl nuclear power plant disaster, and for decades, American volunteers have helped both people and animals in the radiation-contaminated exclusion zone. 2022 was no different, even though Russian troops occupied Chernobyl for a month. Irina Shankarenko has the story narrated for us by Anna Rice. First bath. First puppy bath. It's a spa day for strays like this one in the Chernobyl area of Ukraine, thanks to U.S. volunteers. All part of a wellness program for dogs who live in the exclusion zone the radiation-contaminated site of the 1986 nuclear plant disaster. The next step is an exam by vets, and if they're not already, they'll be neutered or spayed. Behind this initiative is American firefighter and volunteer Eric Kambarian, who in 2016 co-founded Clean Futures Fund, an organization that supports communities affected by industrial accidents. Kambarian first traveled to Chernobyl in 2013 as part of a group of professionals with nuclear energy and emergency response backgrounds. You know, the dogs, if anyone visits, they always have this, you know, fond memory of the dogs of Chernobyl. We offered if we could do a, a humane sterilization and, and vaccination clinic, would they say yes? And they did. Local authorities agreed, and that's how Clean Futures Fund came to be. Kambarian ended up taking one of the dogs back home to Illinois. He named the pup Pravik, in honor of Vladimir Pravik, one of the plant's firefighters who was among the first to respond to the disaster. He later died of radiation sickness. So far, the Clean Futures Fund volunteers have neutered and spayed over 750 animals in the zone. When Russian troops occupied Chernobyl in March 2022, the fund's volunteers continued working. After the Russian occupation, there were hardly any people in the zone. So dogs that used to get fed by locals stopped getting any food. We um, carry in about uh, 800 kilograms of dog food a week right now, um, and that is delivered to the power plant, to different areas around the power plant. Besides feeding the animals, volunteers keep an eye on their general health. So that Dr. Mousseau can then, in his laboratory, be able to see how much radiation this dog has had since 2017. University of South Carolina biologist Timothy Mousseau comes to Chernobyl with the volunteers. He believes many of the dogs being taken care of today are descendants of the animals that survived the 1986 nuclear disaster. What this meant is that we could then look very carefully at their DNA and attempt to determine how, that, how their DNA has changed over these last 37 years. Scientists studying the Chernobyl exclusion zone are hoping it will teach them about how life adapts in an irradiated area and provide subjects for research.
for decades to come. For Irina Shinkarenka, NRI's VOA News. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day. Visit us online at voanews.com and on social media be sure to follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Karish. This is the voice of America. Washington, Papa, Bozette, D.C.